0: Great Expectations is part of the Earth Two Network of podcasts. Episode five: The Mutant Massacre with guest host Chris Yost.
1: I went up there. I said, "Shrink. I want to kill. And I want. Mean, I want to kill, kill. I want. I want to see. I want to see blood and gore and guts and veins in my teeth. Eat death, burnt bodies." I mean, kill, 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 kill. Kill. And I started jumping up and down, yelling, kill, kill. And it started jumping up and down with me, and we was both jumping up and down, yelling, kill, kill. And the sergeant came over, pinned a little on me, sent me down the hall, said, You're our boy. And
0: you feel too good about it. Hey, everybody, this is Jerry. I'm Sean. And this is the fifth episode of the Great Expectations podcast, a show where we like to sit down and discuss some of our favorite X-Men stories, sometimes alone, because we need our time alone every once in a while, and sometimes we bring in a super cool guest for you to hear about their favorite X-Men story. Like we did this week, where we brought in Chris Yost, and you'll get to hear some of that really soon. In the meantime, Sean and I want to talk to you about uh, what we've been doing, with our x-men reading uh we sat down a couple weeks ago both of us and started rereading from giant size x-men number one you from issues i assume right yes yes and i went out and bought the super sweet uncanny x-men omnibus volume one once i saw volume two was solicited i decided i could go ahead and do that so what do you think where are you now
2: um, I think I'm up to, like, the first meeting of the Imperial Guard, which I'm sure we'll talk about on a different episode. We'll recap those issues. Um, because it's been a while, because I had to read this, and then I had to read the stuff for our next guest. Right. So I got a little bit behind on it, which bums me out, because it's really good stuff.
3: Well, I took a look through
2: your Omnibus, but I don't think I could do it. I like the old muddled coloring And I like seeing the old ads and the angry fan letters that are polite because they were written in the 70s.
0: Right. Well, like I said, those they are cool because they include the letters column in the omnibus, which I didn't know they were going to do. I have the Man-Thing omnibus, and I didn't see any of that in that one, so I wasn't really expecting it to be there. But I know we had talked before about how it would be cool to see what people were saying and what they were complaining about. I should have taken some notes on some of the the better letters. Oh, I have well. I have tweeted a couple, I think, that I thought were particularly insightful or uninsightful.
2: Yeah, but for this episode, we had to go back and read what seems to be a lot of people's favorite X Men story, the Mutant Massacre. But it unfortunately is not one of my favorites. Oh man, I know
0: it hurts me. I think
2: to it's hear because. That. Well, I mean, you ever it gets so built up, and then coming at from it, like you read it, you read it as it was coming out. Mm-hmm. So to you it had this huge impact, but to me, anything that was done in this was already pretty much undone by the time that I had taken the time to go back and reread it.
0: Yeah, that's true.
2: So to me, it was just like, oh well, it's nice to know how it happened but it has no effect like I heard um, the other night was the 50th anniversary of the assassination of President Kennedy and I was listening to some stuff on the radio about it and there were a lot of people that would like call into shows because the question was asked of like did this affect you or how does this anniversary affect you and a lot of people were like well it doesn't affect me at all and that I mean I get it it should a little bit because mm-hmm. you should at least understand the importance of it i can't believe i'm comparing the assassination of a president to the <laughs> <massacre>. <laughs> what a dick um but i understand the significance of the storyline and and some of the conversation that gets brought up later when we talk to chris yost actually changed my opinion of it
4: mm-hmm.
2: so it was kind of interesting because at first like in rereading this i know that i texted you a few times while reading it and um the person who's in charge of the mutant massacre, basically like the person who gets the marauders together is is only briefly mentioned, and you never see him um, and the motivation for the characters to uh, go down there and kill the Morlocks is never really sp- it's never really explained mm-hmm. in the actual book until maybe they go back later and give a reasoning you know years from now or whatever. Mm-hmm. But at the time, it wasn't spelled out, and I think that's part of a bigger problem. And I think it has more to do with comics today, where like everything's put in a nice, neat package and trade. I see so many reviews or like people talking online, and it's always like, "I bet this story will read better in trade." But it's like it it shouldn't have to. Like every issue should be great on its own. Mm-hmm. And and part of the interesting thing about this was it was one of the first crossover events and it was interesting to see how it tied together and how little things happening in one played out bigger or different not differently but in bigger ways mm-hmm. in other issues um, so i had a bit of difficulty just from unfortunately falling into the trap of reading it in a trade where uh, some things weren't explained i think i looked at it unfortunately from like a more jaded Now fan, Mm -hmm. and um, some of your explanation and and Yost explanation actually changed it. We're like, this is. Um, at first I was like, well, they need a motivation. They have to have a motivation. Why would they go down there? And it's like,
0: yeah, well, they do have a motivation. They just don't. Claremont chose not to share it with you. Exactly. Yeah, and I, yeah, I think the comparison that I made in my head that that I shared with you is that it's. It's like a random act of violence. Is from the X Men's point of view, like there is there's no reason, there's no explanation, there's no bad guy. At the end, they get away with it. You know, they disappear into the darkness and and they spend years trying to avenge these guys. Saber two's still out there running and he even spent some time on the team. Think about that. (sighs) Which is fucking bullshit. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> there's a, there, actually bringing up the fact that Sabretooth is on the team there's actually a point um, from my youth like one of my favorite issues growing up was this issue where like Sabretooth was basically he was like locked in the mansion for some reason and he had basically pulled like the wool over everybody's eyes and was pretending to basically be like this little wounded bird that didn't remember any of the bad shit that he did and he like he managed to convince Tabitha boom boom that he was like a good guy I think it was like brain damage or something from a f- actually I know exactly what it is and it's something that we'll talk about in the next episode when we have Don Cardenius on because the event that leads up to what Sabretooth does is the final issue of that Wolverine run that we're gonna talk about ah. but um basically Sabretooth convinces Tabitha to let him out and uh Psylocke has to fight him. And it's this whole, you know, cover, Psylocke versus Sabretooth, Nuff Said. And when I read it at first, I was like, why is there Nuff Said? Why are they doing this? Like, why is this <laughs> this big deal? And it was in reading Mutant Massacre when you see that one of Psylocke's first act as an X-Man is going up against Sabretooth. So then all those years later, when she's a badass ninja mm-hmm. fighting Sabretooth, I'm like, I get it. Yeah. I understand why this was a cover worthy of saying, enough said.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm glad we both get that. Now all you other people that haven't read this story need to go out, check this out, and then you'll get it too. Okay, folks, I think at this point we have you warmed up enough. Let's get to the guest. Okay, Sean, why don't you get us started? Okay. Today's
2: guest is one of Jerry and Mai's favorite writers. You would know him from his prolific television animation work with shows like X-Men Evolution, Wolverine and the X-Men, and Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes. His comic work includes Scarlet Spider, Avenging Spider-Man, Superior Spider-Man Team-Up, X-23, New X-Men, X-Force, and the upcoming New Warriors with artist Marcus Toe. You'll also know him as the screenwriter of the number one movie in the world, Thor The Dark World, and he just so happens to be the man who murdered my favorite X-Man. Please welcome to the show, Chris Yost.
3: Hey, everybody. Wow, that sounded really impressive. It, <laughs> it is. is. Killing of Nightcrawler. Well, <laughs> yeah. oddly enough, what I'm most proud of. <laughs> that doesn't surprise
0: me at all. <laughs> we do want to get into that at some point in the show. I think Sean is going to demand some kind of explanation.
2: Uh, he's back now. I'm a little. I'm over it now. But there were tears when it happened initially.
0: Yeah, there were tears, all right. Yeah. there you know, were tears
3: on our end too. Oh, I'm sure. It only kill him once.
0: <laughs> wow. Well, wow, I don't even know what to say to that.
3: <laughs> well enough. Now that he's back, we can kill him again.
0: Oh, I'm going to start a letter writing campaign right now. <laughs> Sean, you take over. I'm going to go get my pencil. <laughs> so um our first question that we wanted to
2: ask the point that we try to get across here is what got everyone interested in comics and what led them to the x-men so what was your first introduction to the x-men
3: as a youngster it was when spider-man beat the crap out of them all in an issue of secret wars uh that was my first real like hit on the (laughs) x-men I was, I was a Spider-Man kid growing up, right? Like all I cared about was Spider-Man. So I, you know, like the electric company and like I had records that you know, had like comic books attached to them and stuff. But yes. I was all Spider-Man all the time. And my mom would give me tons of comic books, mostly Spider-Man, but there would be the occasional Spider-Man team up. And looking back, I realized that I had the issues where like Nightcrawler and Spider-Man fought the Punisher on the Ferris wheel and stuff. Uh, But I didn't really know what, you know, I I knew like Captain America and Hulk and all that, but up until, but I didn't care because all I cared about was Spider-Man. But then Hmm. in a grocery store in the early 80s, I saw an issue of, uh, back when they sold comic books in grocery stores, I saw an issue of Secret Wars that had like the Hulk picking up a mountain to save all the heroes, right? I think it was number four or something. Yes. But uh That's right. I picked that up and it was great and I went back and got the other ones and I met like the X Men and, and you know, all these other heroes and villains that I you know weren't part of Spider-Man's universe on a day-to-day basis. And I started, you know, picking that stuff up too. So like my first issue of Uncanny X-Men was like one eighty seven or something. And it was probably the worst starting point you could probably ever <laughs> get. In college, it was like storm and magic fighting like dire rapes. And Ralm yes. and like Sunshine or whatever it was like we're guest stars and it was, it was insane and I didn't know what anything was. I didn't know what anything was going on, but I loved it. There's it Claremont and Romina Jr. and it was amazing. And that was like my first, because it, because I was so lost, like I just became driven to kind of figure it all out.
0: Can I just tell you that, uh, in the first episode we talked about the comics that brought us to the X Men and mine was the same one. Oh no way! It <laughs> yeah, was. it was. It was. Yeah, yep. the cover is like a
3: picture of Rogue turning into like a direwraith or something.
0: Yep, mine was actually the issue right after that, but it was the second part of that story.
3: And I actually have that issue signed by Claremont. Ooh, that's awesome! Look at that. Are you guys
0: best friends now?
3: Besties? Uh No, we're not. I but I did. I was kind. Of, I was. uh I, I got to work with them on sort of. I got to write script based on a couple of his plots on New Excalibur. So in my mind, we are best friends because of that.
0: Right. In his mind too, I'm sure. I'm sure. But no, I mean, like
3: so, so like, uh, inspirational in the sense that he really kind of like set up what I think of his comics, you know, as far as like the, the sprawling universe and the drama and the, you know, A, B and C and D and E and F plots that he had going on. I mean, his run on X-Men is legendary and amazing and, and well deserved of all the praise we have for it. I agree, 100. <laughs> percent
2: Having that type of like reverence for his work, were you nervous when you first got into writing the X Men, um, when you'd have to like add on to that mythology, like when you did like the the Kingbreaker stuff with uh, introducing the third Summers brother, and like was there ever any nervousness, you know, adding to that mythology?
3: No. No, only because, like, I, I, I was aware enough at that point that whatever I messed up, they could fix or eliminate <laughs> or, or, you know. I was just so happy to be there that I didn't really, like, worry too much about it. I mean, obviously I want to do a good job, but, you know, it's comics at the same time. Like, whatever we do, whatever flights of fancy I may have, like killing Nightcrawler. Can, can be, <laughs> I was just about
0: to say, did he send you a letter when you killed yeah,
3: Nightcrawler? <laughs> can be, uh can be taken care of, so to speak.
0: Hmm. It's interesting. We just had an argument on one of the forums I'm on about, uh, Wolverine's claws, his bone claws and how it, it was a kind of a retcon in the established, uh, universe of, you know, him having these bionic claw implants and, and whether it was okay to, to make a change like that. And clearly you guys are comfortable with it.
3: Yeah, so I guess I I'm so. comfortable with it. I mean, if it. it makes sense. And in that case, it, it did make sense. You know, I, I, uh, I thought that was kind of cool. Because I mean, like, it was really just adamantium coating on his whole skeleton. It kind of made sense that part of his skeleton included the claws. Sure. But I mean, like, you can be the guy that, you know, goes back and looks and sees how thin they were. Because I mean, they're supposed to be fairly, like, <clears throat> thin. They're always drawn that way when I was reading. And, and, uh, but then you look, well, if there's bone in there, how thick is that? All that stuff. But I mean, like, right. I, I get, I get the idea behind it. And I, I think it's pretty cool.
2: So the book that you chose to talk about was um, the 1986 classic Mutant Massacre. Yes. So what led you to this book? Because I'm the youngest um, here, and so I didn't get into comics until the early 90s. So this was um, something that I had to go back and discover when I was younger. So I don't think it had quite the impact on me as it did people who were reading it at the time.
3: At the time, it blew my mind in such a major way. Like, it was such a big deal. And it was so like universe. I don't outside of secret wars. I don't think there'd ever been a crossover that was just like, it just kind of consumed multiple books and not even just X-Men books. I mean, we're talking power pack. We're talking Thor. We're talking all that. So I mean, I, I had been reading uncanny and X factor and new mutants. So I mean, I was, I was all in with the exception of power pack, which I then picked up and with, and, and Thor. I'm going to admit
0: that I read power pack at that time. So it was on my pull list already.
3: <laughs> I, uh, I I knew of it only because they'd shown up I think once before uh, mm-hmm. in Un, Uncanny, but I mean it really got me into the time since Thor too. I mean I'm kind of embarrassed to say it, but I mean like X Men introduced me to Thor in a in a very big way because I just thought that was it was amazing that he got drawn into that adventure. Like that that event was so big that you know it just kind of pulled everybody in and and it really kind of like showcased like the the universe like the shared universe aspect of it. Because, I mean, like, you can read a lot of Spider-Man comics, and it's pretty much just Spider-Man, right? Fantastic Four, just Fantastic Four. But this is, you know, like an event happened so big that it, it started pulling other people in, and I I love that.
0: So should we uh kind of lay out quickly what what actually happened in this event? The basic idea is that the Uncanny X-Men are in turmoil at this point. They, Everybody's all messed up from recent encounters with Nimrod, Professor X is just left into space so that uh Lilandra can save him from certain doom for I forget. <laughs>
3: he's school. Their Arch nemesis Magneto. That's
2: uh, right. actually I had a question about that because when I was rereading this, to me, like my first introduction to Magneto was X Men number one. And it was I mean, he was a villain, like he was a you know, Russian astronaut killing lunatic. <laughs> that was going to destroy the world. So I'm curious how – um because I see – it's like I have this thing with Emma Frost and Magneto both being on the X-Men currently where I'm just always waiting for that other shoe to drop. Even though I technically think that time-wise Emma's probably been a technically good guy for longer than she was a bad guy. But I still feel like because my earliest introduction to her – was as a bad guy, I'm kind of always just waiting for her to like turn on the X-Men. So I'm she's curious like from,
3: God. she's like <laughs> exactly. she's done for 20 years.
2: <laughs> so from, from if, if your guys' perspective was to start reading when Magneto was technically a good guy and headmaster of the school, like was it weird for you when he suddenly went back to being a villain? Were you, I mean, obviously you were aware that he was a villain, but did that change your perception of him as a
0: character?
3: I Did you read uh, X-Men vs. Avengers?
0: Yes. I Yeah, I read it when it came out.
3: Yeah, I mean, like, Claremont laid a lot of groundwork for him being like this. He's not evil, he's just bad. Like, he's making poor decisions for the right reasons. You know, like, he went through a traumatic experience. Like, he's one of the great comic book villains because he's so shady of gray. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, I think for me, it was just because I'd been reading, you know, fairly, you know, for a couple of years at that point, like it was, it was all a build, you know? But I mean, like I, you know, going back and if you look at him in uncanny one and, and all the horrible things he's done. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think it was shocking for, in all the best ways, you know? And I mean, I think that the characters themselves reacted to it. Like when the new mutants were like, wait, who's our teacher? And I mean, like, he, you know, he butted heads with a lot of people. And it was, it was kind of great. Like it was this dramatic tension and conflict that, you know, it's the best kind.
0: Yeah. And they, they could have taken the easy way out too and not shown you what was in his head to really pump up the tension. But, but they, they, uh, Claremont does show you in his mind, he's doing everything he can to live up to Xavier's dream and try to do what Charles would expect him to do, you know, leading into this storyline and then for a short time afterwards.
3: Well, that's the thing. It's like, you know what, 20 issues later, like, you know, the school was destroyed and, like, he's joined, like, the the Hellfire Club and all this stuff, and it seems like he's going to show his true colors. But, I mean, even that's complicated, you know? I mean, I think that, you know, uh, what X-Men does best, you know, is really examine the villains in a certain way, too. It's like there are no... There's a few cookie-cutter villains out there, but, I mean, there's some amazing villains, too. I mean, I, I think that... They're all on the same side. I mean, that's the beauty of the Professor X-Magneto kind of conflict. They're on the same side. They just have different ways of going about it. X-Men First Class, the movie, is like a, a beautiful kind of, you know, boiling down to that. You know, these guys were friends. They worked together. They figured stuff out together, but they just went down different paths. Mm-hmm. I did not like his costume in that story, though. The uh, Like he was wearing oh, no. like, pajamas and a cape. It was weird. <laughs> oh, you're talking about in the comic. Yeah. Yeah, in X Men versus the uh,
0: the Ramita M. Oh like a, one, a big yeah, that one thing.
3: is even Weirder, And trust me, I I love uh Ramita Jr. I think he's amazing. Uh but that costume was just like yeah, it was one of those things that just you couldn't really get away with these days. Like the <laughs> big, big white M. But I was actually referring to the one I think in the uh, Mutant Massacre story. Like it, it looks like he's just wearing like purple sweatpants.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Oh, right. Yeah. Tried to find it here. Yeah, so uh, the story kind of begins with, um, well, the very beginning we see a member of the Morlocks who, for some reason, that's never explained, is in L.A.
3: Her name is Sybil, isn't it?
0: This was Tommy.
3: Oh, Tommy.
0: The rainbow-colored Tommy.
3: Train
0: tracks, right? That's right. Well, her her boyfriend, who's a, a Hellfire Club henchman... Gets murdered by uh, the marauders, and they follow her back to New York, into the tunnels, and start killing every Morlock in the tunnels they can find. How awesome! And is that? that's that's basically how the story starts with no real explanation, other than uh, some shadowy figure wants it done. And uh, the next thing we know in this story, we see Magneto walking into the Hellfire Club, and the cool thing this is where the the crossover to me. Was the coolest is that you start seeing the the same event happen in two books from from two different perspectives. So you see you see in the X Men book you see Magneto walking into the Hellfire Club for whatever purposes he has in his mind, and uh, he turns around and he sees X Factor across the street and he's like, wait a minute, that's the original X Men. But then in the X Factor book, you see them watching Magneto walking into the building and they're like, what is he doing? He's supposed to be leading the X-Men right now. And that's kind of where the whole thing starts, right? Would you agree with that? Yeah. So we're, we're this is, it perfectly hits on what you were talking about with Magneto's ambiguity.
3: Yeah, I mean, like, this entire story, like, it's so monumental. Like, I mean, not only does it introduce the Marauders, it introduces, like, you don't even know who the main villain is, I think, in, in the massacre, but Mr. Sinister and his calling of the Morlocks. I mean, I think that you know, like, history, like, it set up so many huge things in this crossover. Like, it's, it's pretty amazing, looking back. But yeah, like, awesome. to your point, you're right. I can't even recall a book before that where you see simultaneous events like that. Like, there's one moment in the middle of it when they're all in the sewers where, like, in X-Factor, like, Cyclops fires an optic blast, and then in the X-Men book, like, Wolverine ducks. Like, it's, it's yeah. kind, of, kind of amazing.
0: <laughs> it's The amount of planning that that must have taken place is pretty impressive. But when you start looking at the the list of creators on this book, you see a lot of overlap with artists and with uh, editors writing some stories, editing others. And you know the with uh, Walt Simonson and, and Weezy Simonson, yeah. you know writing a lot of the stories, and Claremont writing the other half of it. It was probably. Easy to coordinate that, despite the amount of work it must have taken.
3: Right, because I mean, it's, I think it was like basically three or four writers. Because wasn't Louise Simonson writing Power Pack at the time too?
0: She, I think she wrote the Power Pack issue. She yes, wrote X Factor, and then her husband, who I'm sure she saw quite often, was writing Thor.
3: Yeah, and then Claremont was writing New Mutants and Uncanny.
0: Yep, right. So, and then uh, Ann Nocenti, who was the X Men's editor, wrote the Power or the Daredevil issue. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, a pretty small group of, uh, a pretty close
3: Knit group, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, th- as far as I know, those, those guys all had pretty close relationships. So, um, yeah, it must have been a cool meeting room, I would imagine.
3: I would imagine.
0: Well, you probably have meetings like that all the time, so you don't even have to imagine.
3: I'm having one right now. The, uh, one of my other <laughs> favorite parts is the map. Do you remember, like, that ad that they had that kind of showed you, like, where everything. Like, all, all yes issues that are involved. I love yeah, is that. Is
0: that in the trade, Sean? Sean's got the... uh That is similar to it, but it's kind of like a... The way I remember it, it's like a cross-section of the Morlock Tunnel, and then there's this maze that they have all the issues. Right. And uh there's a maze that, that you follow to get to the end of the story. But you have to hit this issue, and then that leads you to this. It was so cool. We will yeah. have to post that on the Internet.
3: Yeah, I mean like the I think Up the, the target, infinity right? the infinity event going on in Marvel right now, they have something at the end of every issue that kind of shows you the reading order. But right, this yeah. was a fun thing because like you really didn't necessarily have to read everything. Like you could just follow one set of adventures all the way through. But obviously if you read everything it's great. But uh I don't know, man, there was just something special about it because it was like I think really the first time that anyone had tried something like it. We, Craig Kyle and I tried it in X Force with the Necrosha book. Mm-hmm. yes so, uh, uh, you know and we would see like you know like the Hellions would show up in one issue but they'd show up later in New Mutants and like we really kind of tried to capture some of that spirit you know to say if we were successful or not but I mean we really wanted to kind of have that that simultaneous chaotic event occurring all over at the same time seen through multiple books and the inspiration of that was hands down Mutant Massacre really that is awesome this. Yeah
0: so so you sat down you guys sat down together and you were like you know what we should do we should do something like mutant massacre
3: absolutely
2: I
0: mean, is it, man that's cool i
2: know i love that there's a <laughs> there's a splash page in that book where it's got the like necrocia version of banshee popping up it's like the first time i, I love that page Ah, oh, such a great moment
0: yeah sean misses banshee <laughs> i a do lot.
3: terribly <laughs> everyone i've ever loved dies <laughs> That's the whole point. The whole point of the was bringing back all these guys. That's true. So, no, I loved it. Pyro was back. Banshee was back. Like the Hellions were back. Even Berserker, who shows up in Mutant Massacre, basically is back. Yeah. So in theory, they're all out there.
0: I forgot about Berserker. I, know, now I have
3: to go home and read that story. Yeah, I'm gonna have to read sure, that again for sure. Scale Face, remember they showed up? I think and it was like X Factor 13 or something. I don't know, but yeah. yeah. So, I As wanted
0: I, to make a point to mention Scaleface specifically because I thought Simonson drew her so beautifully. And I, I had a huge crush on her, and it destroyed me when she died at the end of that story. I love the fact that you had the crush on the one that would turn into, like, a reptilian monster. Well, she isn't always a reptile, I Sean. I understand.
3: <laughs> <laughs> she, she was hot. That one issue, too.
0: She I was, yeah, yeah. I don't I think... think so. I, I think that that was one thing that I really liked about this was that you, there were mo, Morlocks that you saw for the first time, and they were mostly cannon fodder. But there's also Morlocks that we have a history with, both in Uncanny and in, in, in uh, a one-power-pack appearance as well. Um, and they really developed those characters in that story, and when you start to see some of those guys die, it starts to hit home a little more. If I mean, if you have history with those books you know if you're somebody like sean where you're just sitting down reading this trade you know maybe it doesn't have the same amount of um power that that it would for somebody familiar with the story you know and and rereading it 10 times as a as a nine-year-old kid like like i did but um but yeah some of these watching some of these morlocks go like the uh annalee um her story was tough because this woman uh, debuted later on, but you first hear mention of her in uh Uncanny One Ninety Three. Uh, you find out that all some woman named Annalee just lost her four kids up on the streets of New York. They were all murdered, and Callisto flips out at Storm, and she's like, "You see what's happening up there?" And then you meet her later on. Either I think it's in is it? There's an X Men.
3: It's like One Ninety Six they kidnap Power back.
0: Right. Yeah, so she wants to replace her children with Power Pack, and it, it sounds kind of hokey, I guess now, but uh, it's tragic too, you know. And, and uh, she does finally replace the, you know, she gets over the memories of her lost children and replaces them with other Morlock misfits who are cast offs She takes them in as her own, and then here early on in the massacre, uh, this um, uh, scalp hunter guy finds her. And shoots her right in the face, and kills half of her kids. And later on in the series, who finds a but power pack like these little kids that were terrified over her at first, but uh, actually learn to love her. And I want to say they call her like Aunt Annalee or something like that. But uh, they come across her corpse, and you know these little kids—they're less than ten years old, probably. You know, how are they dealing with with this kind of uh, tragedy?
3: Yeah, it's intense, man. Like mutant massacre was hardcore. Like, it was, it was pretty amazing. Like, you know, the innocence Lost is just such a huge part of all that, especially for Power Pack. But I mean, like, it's crazy. I mean, just like a flat out massacre like that. It was just like I don't think anybody had really seen it before. Like, and, yeah, you know, it's like this has really started to distinguishes like the X Men from like Avengers and all that stuff. I mean, this is a a dark, dark world. And, I mean, like, again, all of this was set up, to a certain extent, by days of future past. I mean, like, Claremont showed us what the world was going to become. And at the end of the day, it actually turned out worse than anyone could ever imagine.
0: Right. Yeah, and I I wanted to point out, too, uh, re-reading this, realizing the the timing of it. This came out in 1986, so that's shortly after uh, we first see Watchmen. And Dark Knight Returns, you know, which are both classically dark comics. And it seems like this is Jim Shooter's answer to those books. You know, nobody does dark like Marvel does dark. And we're going to show everybody with our flagship, the X-Men.
3: Yeah. Well, well done. They did it, man. That was dark.
0: <laughs> it was, it was dark. And for, I, I guess I was 12 when this came out. Uh, 12 year old Jerry had a hard time getting through some of this stuff because I was not ready. For what was happening? I mean, we'd seen some tough stuff with uh, Wolverine and and uh, uh, Rachel Gray going head to head, and Wolverine attempting to kill her to stop her from murdering uh, Celine in an earlier issue. Uh, you know, we had kind of seen the tipping point there of the X Men going into a crisis. You know, where they're starting to disintegrate, and it seems like this event is really threatening to push them over the edge.
3: And it wipes out. I mean, it takes out Shadowcat. It takes out Colossus. Like they both leave the team after that. You know, Magneto kind of like is sort of in charge now. I mean, like it really turns everything. I mean, this is kind of where what starts. Like Psylocke comes in, Longshot comes in, Dazzler comes in. I mean, the the effect of the Marauders on the face of the X Men changed everything. Like all the because I mean, really, I think it was only less than two years later. All the mutants happens. I mean, it was like a, like a domino effect of bad days for X-Men.
2: You get, like, beginning parts of Apocalypse in here, like picking up the horsemen, which is going to lead to Angel becoming Archangel. You see him yeah, choose two. that was
3: the thing. That was the other thing in Mutant Master that was so insane. It's like, he, he lost his wings. Like, you know, uh, Harpoon puts two spears through his wings and pegs him up on the wall. You know, like that image of Thor coming and, like, you know, rescuing him is still kind of, like, amazing, you know? But, I mean, it was like that changed Angel forever.
0: And ironically, I think everyone would agree it ended up changing him for the better as far as being a heroic character. But, uh, watching it, or reading it happen at the time was really painful and tragic because everybody knows he was kind of the lamest X-Men. <laughs> you know, whether you liked him or not, <laughs> Sean, uh, as far as a power set, you know, he was probably, especially down in the tunnels, had a hard time contributing <laughs> and kind of paid for it. You know, in a heroic way, like he acts as a distraction so others can get away, and gets his wings torn off as a thank you for that. He impressed a god in that moment. He did. He impressed a would god. Be
3: tough to do, right? Yeah, I mean, like you know, again, it was another turn for the villains too, because up to that point, who are they fighting? Like Toad, Blob. You know, I mean, right. this, now they're faced with a team of killers, just flat out killers, and it's you know, angel-based prose. much like Nightcrawler did.
0: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> At least Angel went out like a man.
3: Whoa! Whoa! No. What are you talking about? Nightcrawler saved it. Messiah.
0: Yeah, you're right.
2: Nightcrawler went out perfectly. He Honestly, did. if there was if there was a way for him to go out, that was perfect. Yeah.
3: That that literally is the reason Krako and I kind of took it on. Like we knew it was coming in the room, and we kind of really volunteered to have that moment just because we wanted to give him the. You know, the best we possibly could. It was not that else that done it better, but I mean, we just like, we really wanted to give them that moment. Yeah. I'm going gonna,
2: I'm gonna to sound like a huge suck up here, but no, that was perfect. Honestly, perfect.
0: You do sound like a suck up. I know, but I loved it that much. I don't No, No, it was great. It was great. And I still think it's a miracle. And, you know, I guess it's not a miracle because you guys wrote what happened, but. Under the circumstances, I really expected the body count to be a lot higher, and I'm grateful that it wasn't. <laughs>
3: yeah, I mean, I think literally everybody that died in that book, like, has come back now. So,
0: I mean, Onyx. Where's Onyx? Yeah,
3: well, except him.
0: <laughs> little rock slide, as I like to call it. Now, so the first
2: time that I read this, too, one of the things that kind of pops up is reading it in trade um, was odd because there's this whole, like, little interlude with uh, – a. Tabitha Boom Boom,
4: yeah. and
2: she is working with Vanisher. who when I initially read this, I was like, I don't know who Banisher is, but because of your X-Force work, you brought that character back out of obscurity and made him fantastic. And I'm just curious, like, what sparked that idea? Because I've never, it was just a really good, like, I never would have expected to use that character in such a good way and turn him into quite the fan favorite.
3: Yeah, Craig Kyle always called Vanisher the Bam. Because, like, he literally was, <laughs> that was his whole purpose, was to transport them around. <laughs>
4: That's
3: just, awesome. We didn't want to give them, like, the Blackbird or, you know, like, an actual vehicle. Because, you know what? They're mutants. They should have something cooler. So they basically horrifically blackmailed Vanisher into kind of, like, just trucking them around. And, I mean, when X-Force started, it was basically, like, the four characters from Mut- Messiah Complex. It was Wolverine, Warpath, Wolfsbane, and X-23, right? Well, even, even we recognized that that probably wouldn't sustain. So, I mean, we had to add more characters and give a, you know, it can't just be the Claw people. So we added Archangel and brought him back into being Archangel. We, you know, brought in Domino. We brought in Elixir from New X-Men. And we brought in Vanisher, who I think probably did end up being our favorite just because, like, the poor bastard. Like, yeah, he's a bad guy, right? But they really put him through the ringer. They (laughs) they gave him a tumor. They beat him up like he got bits of himself cut off, like every other issue. Like it was, uh, he was highly enjoyable to write. You,
2: you guys made him the most sympathetic one of all of them. (laughs) I know,
3: right? Like at the end, he really was like you really felt for him. And in Negrosia, he actually had a heroic moment even, so we were We're we were proud of that. that.
2: And also, thank you for bringing back Archangel.
3: Yeah. uh, that
2: x-force run hit like every 90s (laughs) kids nostalgia moment
3: it's fantastic no we, we we were so excited to do that because yeah you know you're right angel is great archangel though kind of takes it to the next level
0: he does until he becomes a villain and then he ruins everybody's party
3: well yeah there's that
0: But the fun riding that razor's edge right that's the sweet spot is he gonna turn or is he not
3: that's the thing. Well, like he's like this insane, reluctant apocalypse killer. You know, fighting on your team. You're standing right next to him. You have no idea what he's going to do. And that's kind of like the fun of X Force. Like all of them basically are killers, but they're all kind of doing the fighting the good fight. You know, until they decide to kill you. <laughs>
0: that's right. <laughs> and let the record show that I think Sean will agree with this. But uh, without your X Force, there would be no Remender X Force. And I want all those Remender X Force fans to remember. That you guys came first and if they haven't read your stuff yet they need to go pick it up because it was awesome
3: yeah they do well i think they, they're they actually putting exports like our volume back in the trade because i think the movie's coming out but the um or so that's the rumor but i mean it's you know yeah we're proud of what we did and you know rick is an amazing writer that you know took some of the stuff that we kind of set up and he knocked it out of the park you know like the dark angel thing was was fantastic um so yeah we're glad that like we put all these like things out there so people will pick up and go with it because that's the stuff we want to read you know like we talked about characters like banshee and pyro and like the hellions like we this this is what we grew up with you know so we wanted to uh you know just kind of put them back on the table because you know they're they're great characters and more great stories can be told with them because when you think about it, you know, it's like there's probably people starting to read comics. that have no idea who Banshee is or who any of these characters are because they've been dead. But, you know, that's the the glorious thing about the comics universe is nobody's dead for too long. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, sorry. Oh, wait.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so let's go back for a second here because you mentioned a rumor that they will appear in Days of Future Past. Is that the rumor or that they will get their own
3: I think that X-Force is in the works for a movie, aren't they? Yeah, Yeah. I think uh, somebody mentioned that 20th Century Fox is developing an X-Force movie. Yeah.
0: Oh my god, I've not heard that. Sean, you've been holding out on me.
2: If it doesn't have Boom Boom in it, it doesn't count.
0: (laughs) I disagree, make the film anyway. Do what you have to do. Talk to your people. Are you involved in this project?
3: I am not.
0: Well, that's too bad.
3: You yeah, should probably. get an
0: executive producer credit or something.
3: But Then I'd have to do something.
0: I thought executive producers didn't have to do anything. I thought that's why it was sweet.
3: No, I think I think, uh, I think it's, it depends on what kind of executive producer you are.
0: Oh, I didn't realize there were degrees.
3: Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, there are. There's a wide range of executive producers. Some are just like executives at the studio that uh, do an amazing amount of work on the movie, and then some are like Stanley.
0: <laughs> you so, don't even have to say like stanley you just say stanley and then there's stanley
3: but he had his cameo in thor 2 that was pretty fun he yeah, did was fun
0: yeah that
3: was also
2: excellent i don't want to get too spoilery because i don't want to um, you know people who haven't seen it that are listening who should go out and see it immediately
0: yeah now should. when you guys sit down to work on that screenplay do you do you say okay now we know there's gonna have to be a Stanley appearance in here somewhere, so let's plan for that. Or did the studio dictate how that goes down?
3: Uh, no, we knew that there needed to be one, and we, you know, were constantly looking for places to do it, and uh, that that ended up being the best place. There were there were a couple of options, but that was our favorite.
2: Now you spoke about working with um, Craig Kyle. So, do you prefer to work collaboratively, or do you prefer? kind of be able to do your own thing.
3: Well, I mean, how does that
2: relationship work?
3: Yeah. I mean, like the hands down, everything I do is a collaboration. I mean, you're always working on someone, Uh, but the stuff Craig and I do together on the comics specifically or the animation really is like a, we are both writing it kind of together collaboration. Um, And yeah, I love working with Craig. He's like, not only is he an amazing creative force, like he's just like an idea machine. uh, But He's insanely fun to kind of hang around with too. Like he's, uh, he's a great guy. So, yeah, I love working with Craig. But he, his full-time job is, is so insanely demanding at Marvel that, uh, that, uh, I, I think he's just slowly kind of lost the time to work on the comic books. But I, you know, I, he and I have talked lately about kind of getting back into it together. Um, so hopefully fingers crossed we can make that happen.
0: That would be awesome. And if you do, I'd just like to put in one vote for an X-Book. Well, I know you're a big Spider-Man fan, but...
3: No, his, uh, his love of the X-Men far outstrips my own. So, I mean, like, I love the X-Men, but he loves the X-Men. Like, those that, those are his books, man, for sure.
2: There's room for Banshee in the New Warriors. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> no, we got
3: Justice. That's my mutant in the New Warriors. Fair enough. Yeah, it's true. One of the most powerful teleconnects on the planet.
0: Not bad for a thousand-year-old man who isn't a thousand years old anymore. Not yet. Not yet. That's issue two. I see how they. <laughs> oh, spoilers, everybody! Awesome.
3: You what heard else? it I was going to say something else about New Warriors. Honestly, uh, there's a bunch of X-Men stuff in New Warriors because it's New Warriors is kind of fun because it's it's everything. So you've got magic people, space people, you've got mutants, you've got inhumans, you've got clones, you've got, you've got it all. Like one of everything, basically. That makes up the team. So we're gonna get to do some big mutant stories too. I think in the first issue, and the second issue, you actually are gonna get to see some more locks. Get out. I love it. Yeah.
0: Are you gonna kill them all? <laughs> no. We're gonna save them. Oh, oh, that's awesome. See, if the new mutants had been around, or the new warriors had been around, none of this would have happened.
3: I had been writing uh, X-Men comics for a number of years, and then I came over to the Spider-Man office, right? And mm-hmm. Steve Wacker and I were working on this insane, like, uh, Avengers tie-in to Spider-Island, where everybody gets Spider-Man powers, right? Mm-hmm. And so I have these bad guys come into the UN and just kill everybody, right? And he's like, dude, this is not an X-Men book. You can, like, <laughs> save people's lives, too so that kind of really like made me stop and think honestly it's like you know generally the superheroes save people from getting wiped out but in x-men books like it's it's just such a dark world sometimes that you forget you forget about the superhero you part of it
0: yeah you know i was just uh finally catching up on this battle of the atom thing today and and they actually spend a spell that out you know that they come back from the future to to try to Change the past just like days of future past except from further in the future and uh, and the whole thing is that in the end they realize they will always be fighting this battle you know they've seen the future again the future is grim and there will always be people trying to kill the X-Men and that's basically what the X-Men is about which sucks
3: (laughs) yeah you know what honestly there's a bit in new X-Men where like all kids are kind of like freaked out because they're all getting killed left and right and, uh, like, of all people, Rock Slide gives them this inspirational speech about, you know, being X-Men and being heroes and, like, standing up and not giving up. And it's just like, to me, it's like, no matter how grim it gets, like, the X-Men are great because they're trying. You know, they're, they are here because it's not just about survival, they want to help. And it's, you know, it's kind of like amazing, really, when you think about it, because, because that world is so grim, like, pretty much everybody would just kind of pack it in and be like, well, we tried, sorry <laughs> right, guys. This obviously is not going to work out. For 10,000 years, we're going to be, like, hounded and killed. But you know what? They're still fighting the good fight. And that is why X-Men is great. It is.
0: That's it. That's why they're great. And they have cool powers. But yeah, that's, not, that's not why they're great.
3: And hot chicks. And oh, man. And claws. And... No, I mean, X-Men is, like, it's, it is honestly, it kind of really inspired me. Like, Spider-Man was always great. But X-Men really was the comic that really just kind of, you know, made me kind of want to do this.
0: Love it. So let's say um, Marvel comes to you and says, we're thinking about relaunching the X-Men line entirely, and we want to give you first crack at forming your own X-Men team. You can take anybody you want. What what characters do you think you would want to make sure was on your roster? <laughs>
3: Hmm, that's a point.
0: Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be like your fully formed roster, perfectly balanced. But if you, you know, there's certain characters you know you'd want to have.
3: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, you know, I think Cyclops is hands down one of my favorite characters in X Men. Always is
0: fist pumping.
3: A, a sucker for the leaders. Uh, I would find a way to put Jean Grey on that team. Oh my God, you're hitting every note I want. I, love <laughs> Gene I need Gray. this book now. Um, you know, Wolverine's kind of an obvious one, uh, but I, you know what? He's a great character. Like I would probably regress him back to something he was earlier where he really was kind of like the, the foil and not necessarily a leader. Um, I always loved Iceman. I, I'd put Iceman in there for sure. I know it sounds like I'm doing a lot of original five, but I wouldn't really do Beast or, or Angel. I like Storm. I like Rogue. I like, uh, who else do I like? Yeah. Like, a, I'm a huge Colossus fan. I always like the strong guy.
0: And you'd want to add Nightcrawler so you could kill him, right?
3: <laughs> <laughs> He'd be like the Kenny of my ex men <laughs>
0: You're killing me.
3: <laughs> okay. Let's uh, see
0: what we can do to make
3: this book. No, I I can't even tell you how much I love Nightcrawler. Do you remember that uh the four issue nightcrawler miniseries with all the Bams and he goes on his little adventure? Like yeah, I read you know. that and I was like, I love this guy. I uh he, he, honestly, he really is one of my favorite characters. I'm glad he's back. I listen. I don't. I don't
2: doubt you for a second. You handled it again. You handled it beautifully. I'm just giving you a hard time because it hurt
3: my heart. I know, I know. It's gonna be okay. I swear.
0: <laughs> well, it looks like we're coming up on our time limit here. So, do you need to get going?
3: Uh, I got about five more minutes.
0: Oh, do you want to take a full five to discuss New Warriors in a little more detail, or are you happy with?
3: Yeah, no, New Warriors is going to be coming out in February by myself and, uh, Red Robin collaborator Marcus Toe. So it's, uh, it's, it's Justice, Speedball, the new Nova, Scarlet Spider, and four new characters. Uh, there's Sun Girl, who's been showing up in Superior Spider-Man team up lately. There's, uh, an Atlantean character named Water Snake. There is an inhuman character named Hei Chi, who shows up in issue two. And there is a uh, a girl that's in Scarlet Spider right now called Hummingbird, who's a lot of fun. So it's, you know, half people we know, half new characters, but uh, this is the new warriors kind of reforming uh to fight a new threat that involves kind of uh the next evolution of humanity. I think that in the Marvel Universe, humans, like mutants, are always kind of considered the next step, right? Mm-hmm. But you look around and now there's there's inhumans mutants there's people with superpowers like you know radioactive spiders and cosmic rays and just like the entire like the entire species has just been really kind of messed up right so it, it's becoming clear that whatever humanity was it's getting kind of like crowded right like there's so much weird stuff going on there's like demigods and half alien hybrids and like humankind is going to get wiped out and so somebody uh, takes, it amongst them, takes it upon themselves basically to save humanity, to give it the room it needs to breathe and become whatever amazing thing it's going to become by killing every single other thing in the Marvel Universe. So if you're a clone, a demigod, a half-breed alien, if you're an Atlantean, if you're a mutant, a human, or if you've got weird powers, they are coming to kill you, everything, hands down. And the new warriors... Uh, who are comprised of all these different, you know, all the, all these people come from different corners of the Marvel Universe. They're coming together to stop this. Oh, man.
0: I'm so, in.
3: Yeah. Sounds great. So there are some characters that showed up in an X-Men book I did called X-Men First to Last. They're called the Evolutionaries. And they're a large part of the story. Uh, I don't think it's secret the high evolutionaries involved. And it, it really, uh, hopefully, is kind of like a big... A big kickoff to what should be a pretty fun book because the, the joy of it really is we can tell any story we want. We can go into space. We can do magic stuff. We can do, you know, mutant stuff. We can do inhuman stuff. We can do anything because, you know, we've got one of everybody. So we really, I really wanted this to not be a Spider-Man book, a X-Men book. This is a Marvel Universe book. That's awesome. Looking forward to it. So that's hey. in February. That's in February. And uh, for the time being, that's actually going to be it for me. Uh, Scarlet Spider is wrapping up with issue 25 in December, and Superior Spider-Man team-up number 8, the aftermath of the Superior Six story. That's going to be my last issue of that book.
0: Oh, wow. So you're down to one title. I'm down to one title. In
3: comics. In comics. And then uh, is... a couple other things going on in the on the feature film side and – it's uh it's keeping me a little busy, but uh comic books really are my passion, so I really I never want to not be doing a comic book.
0: We don't want you to come to that either. Stick with us.
3: Let's help. Let's hope everyone read New Warriors then. And I will. will. Everyone read it. Everyone. so I don't
0: have to buy forty thousand copies.
3: That's right.
0: I'll do it if I have to, but I'd rather not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chris. Well best of luck to you in the future. And we thank you for coming on the show.
3: Thank you very much. No, this is fun.
0: Well, there you go, Sean. The Mutant Massacre, according to Chris Yost. What do you think?
2: I, I have to admit, upon the reread, it's much better than I initially gave it, which makes me want to read Inferno again and follow the mutants because yeah. those were two stories where I was like, "What?" Yeah. Inferno just made me think of like that scene at the end of Ghostbusters <laughs> when like all the ghosts. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I started to notice what it is. upon my first reread of all the Claremont stuff that like Claremont was really maybe people just didn't give a shit like they do now, but it just seemed like Claremont was like, fucking Star Wars was sweet, Dark Phoenix saga, <laughs> and then like yeah. all of a sudden it was like Aliens that is bad, that and is that is flick was awesome.
0: It. Brood, you know what movie I like Terminator. I love Terminator.
2: <laughs> right?
0: <laughs> yeah. So all of a sudden
2: I'm like I'm looking at the dates that these were put out and I'm yeah. like, fucking guy, love movies.
0: Yeah, you know when I was younger I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what dates those movies came out on I was like, did they steal that from the X Men? <laughs> <laughs> so naive I was so naive I was like man Claremont was ahead of his time but you
2: know what's crazy is like the stories are so good that I don't give a shit
0: yeah I but mean it's the same story you know but but they make it different enough that it stands up on it's own and the one exception I'll make to that is uh, something I tweeted about with the GX Pod account earlier this week I think it was this week where there's a scene where, uh, and you're—I think you're—at this point where, where the um, or the Shiar Empire is trying to track down the Landra, and they they cut to the inside of one of their ships, and it's the bridge from the Starship Enterprise, and uh, it's—I mean, like they want you to know it's the bridge from the Starship Enterprise. They don't try to pretend like let's borrow a few ideas from here. Cockrum's just like, you know, I've got all these deadlines. I'm just going to, it'll, I'll just, what's on the TV, that's what I'm going to draw on this page.
2: I think, too, there's an image, like, the first time that, like, the, it might not be the first time, but I know that there's an image when, like, the the X-Men are, like, teleported onto, like, the main part of the, like, Shi'ar fleet, yeah, the main big ship, and, like, you see all the Imperial Guard, I think. I might be wrong. I might be thinking of something else. But I think that, like, in the background, you can see, like, C-3PO and R2-D2. Get and you can here. see, like, characters from different... Um, uh, I never noticed that. Yeah, you should pull out the Omnibus and take a look at it. Because it's, like, a double-page spread, and I think in the background, like, on the top tiers, you can see, like, R2-D2 and C-3PO.
0: I think I know the page yeah. you're talking about, but I don't, I don't never notice any of that. I do notice that when they transport, somebody blatantly says... It's just like the Enterprise, or just like in Star Trek, or something yeah. like that. I'm like,
4: ah.
2: But I don't care. Do you have
0: to be so overt. No, because that's part of the problem with like the
2: enjoyment of comic books now is like when I read those, it was like, oh, this is awesome. Like, yeah, take from that and take from that and take from things that I love, like great things that I love, yeah, and make them into this thing that I love even more. Yeah. Yes, please. But now, like the fandom tends to look at those things and it's like, like Infinity. Infinity is a fucking Battlestar Galactica, space Star Wars-esque Star Trek thing, and I don't give a fuck as long as it's fun.
0: Yeah, it didn't feel as much of a swipe from something else. It needs to be fun. Of course it should be fun, otherwise you end up with Avengers Assemble. (laughs) (laughs) The fan favorite of all the Avengers titles, by the way, according to a recent poll... Published in the letters column of Avengers 23. So it shows what taste people have in comics these no, days. No, it
2: just shows you, this is, you can cut this out.
0: Oh yeah, this is all going to be cut out.
4: No,
2: no, no, I mean you can cut out what I'm about to say. <laughs> <That's why we laughs> oh, never, I will. I'm shaking my head now. never, ever, ever, ever in our life played a battle of the bands. That's just asking for trouble. Because all you're doing, right, is allowing the person who has like the most time on their hands and or friends to show up and win.
0: Here we go. Here it comes three, two, one. Back when I was in a band.
2: Oh, Jesus. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, like, so maybe everybody was a fan of Avengers, didn't feel like fucking writing in because they were reading good books, but everybody who was reading Avengers Assemble. Was like, I gotta oh write shit, in. it's about to get canceled. Yeah. We got to
0: say it's the best one. Yeah, no, I did. I get that. I get that. Where were we? So going back to the mutant massacre, uh, the thing we were talking about was how it was a senseless act of violence from the X-Men's opinion. And uh, days like these, I feel like, that's more relevant than ever, when we see so many r- at random acts of violence in real life. You know, this this kind of stuff stands out. There's a scene in the Thor movie that really, you said, somebody you know saw Thor, yeah, exactly. and, and it really brought back 9-11 to them. And I think that this story... Really rings and reads like a school shooting or something like that, you know, and it's completely fictional. But, uh, it was a more innocent time back then, I think, in some ways. Uh, you know, people were murdered on the street all the time in the 80s. You know, the crime was epidemic in, in New York City in the 80s. So it's not a surprise that anybody would die, but, uh, murder on this scale didn't happen in the United States anybody. Even mutants in our communities didn't <laughs> get slaughtered <laughs> in these numbers. Uh, so I think at this time it was a shock and and it felt senseless and you, you were asking those questions. Why did this happen? Why did this happen to these characters? Uh, some of who you do have some familiarity. Some of them were just created for this book to be cannon fodder and slaughtered so that you could rack up a body count but um there's real impacts for real characters that you've grown to love some you're just familiar with their story um and that makes it more of an impact but you know there's a strong thread of uh hope for the mutant race you you were just flipping past a, a story in the beginning where rogue saved some window washers and uh and they stick up for her later when other people are giving her shit about being a mutant they're like hey you got a problem with her you got a problem with me she's a person and she just saved my ass from being a smear on the pavement you know and i owe her for that and and you should be thankful that she's out there helping people and and you go from that that moment of hope to a real moment of despair in the the tunnels you know where uh you find out that it's other mutants that are causing it. You know, even among their own people, you're seeing this senseless slaughter, and they're looking for answers why this shit is happening to them. And in the end, you're, you're left with no answers. You know, this happens in continuity. It's part of, you know, the bigger tapestry. You know, you see them going in with one set of problems, serious problems, health problems, um, teamwork problems, people leaving the team that you've grown to love over the years and and uh you're left with a team that's completely shattered
2: the other thing too like along that line that i found really interesting was the fact that like you see the team really shaken at this point because of the events and then things that were leading up to it and things that happened to them directly afterwards But the one thing that stays true is like this is a turning point where like you start to see that like this might affect the team and it might make some members leave or cause some members to change slightly their way of thinking or how they're gonna go about the dream. But the basic core of the dream stays the same where it's like this is exactly why we do what we have to do it's almost where initially when reading this like I looked at it and I was just like this just seems like a reason to just kill a bunch of people as like a response to a time period it now looks at it as though maybe because of where X Factor was with like the lying and the, and the cover ups and like hiding behind the, the corporate facade of like we're hunting down mutants maybe this was possibly the best thing that could have happened at that time as awful as that sounds because it reaffirmed exactly why the X-Men were needed
0: yes where, what was my you response to that?
2: What me out about this is I miss seeing a smoking wolverine.
0: Yeah. 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 Uh, the stuff we're working on with Don, you kind of see oh, yeah. the end of that a little bit. Yeah. You know, his healing factor is down, and and he's like, oh, I got to kick these nasty things. I was like, oh, that's where this starts to happen. Uh, but yeah, smoking Wolverine, that, that is the Wolverine I grew up with. Yeah. You know, and he explains it, you know, my, my healing factor lets me do this kind of stuff. Normal people shouldn't. So, so that was, that was for the parents, I'm sure. Yeah. So a couple things that don't get touched on in the interview with Chris that I thought were notable were, um, kind of where X Factor was coming from, which you just kind of hinted at, uh. X Factor had just formed because Jean Grey was back from the dead, surprisingly, for the first time. Really, well, the second time, the first time that it's really Jean Grey, as far as we know. There's a retcon. Can I, can
2: I just say I am a Cyclops fanboy, but I hated him in this story. Like yeah. This time period with like the Madeline Jean love triangle. Like, I'm married, but I can't be with Gene, But I want to be. Oh, what
0: a dick. I oh man, as a kid reading that I I put myself right in his shoes. Yeah. And uh I I just felt so bad for him because clearly he he would have been with Jean if he didn't think that she had been disintegrated by a laser on the the blue area of the moon. But now with the reread and the whole Colleen Wing thing I really wonder if that's true. <laughs> I gotta get to the point where I see what the hell brought Colleen Wing into it. Why was he dating her roommate's best friend? Yeah, so, uh... So, but as far as I knew as a 12-year-old, he's married to a woman that looks just like the woman he lost. uh, And loves her. You know, he thinks, but he's torn by his commitment to his duties, as an X-Men because he was an X-Men before he ever knew what love was. You know, that's, that's been his whole life as long as he can remember at this point. So yeah, it really is a love triangle, but it's more like a love square because the fourth corner is his duties to the X-Men. You know, he's, he doesn't know what to do. First he's, do I want to be an X-Men or do I want to be with Madeline and this baby of mine? And then he makes the decision he needs to be the X-Men. But then Storm boots him. So that decision's made. I'm going to be with Madeline. And then Jean Grey's reborn. And he's like, no, what do I do? So the, the end of that story is that he leaves the X-Men with the original X-Men, and they form this group called X-Factor. And the idea is that they are going to collect as many mutants as they can find secretly and try to train them the way they would at Xavier's school. I don't know why they didn't just send him there. But uh, as a cover, they would be this mutant hunting group called X-Factor and that normal people, normal humans, would hire them to be like exterminators to go solve their mutant pest problem. And then they create an alternate persona where there are a mutant terrorist organization called the Exterminators who are you know, they can go out in costume and and perform as real mutants, use their powers in the open and take care of shit that way. So that comes to be a problem that they don't really foresee with the rest of the mutant community who thinks that they're anti establishment or that's not what I want to say. Who thinks that uh they're anti mutant and when they start IDing them as the original X Men, which uh I think Magneto is really the first to do at the very beginning of this event. And uh, and Freedom Force also does when they run into them at the beginning of this event. And Everybody happens. starts putting the pieces together.
2: In this event, it gets leaked that Warren Worthington is behind the funding for X-Factor Right. he's a mutant.
0: So the game is up. By the end of this, uh, they're exposed for what they really are. Um, and And X-Factor, as it was originally conceived, kind of comes to an end in this series um, but they do play an important role in the in the massacre in trying to stop the massacre uh, they do save a few lives but I think compared to the, some of the successes that the X-Men have I think that the original X-Men aren't quite up to the, the task in the same way as we see with Angel and uh, the damage that's done to him
2: one of the things that I do want to talk about Honestly, is, um, this, is this the first time that we ever see Colossus kill someone?
0: Yes. Cause yeah, I think that's one of the most significant events in this. I mean, there are some significant events in this that change the way things happen for the X-Men, but that's right up there.
2: I mean, just... snaps his neck.
0: We see the X-Men with a bunch of refugees come upon the Marauders and the Marauders just start shredding everybody. Everyone's in trouble. We see Rogue get taken out. We see Kitty Pryde get taken out. And when that happens, uh, Colossus just snaps. And uh, you see an epic battle between him and Riptide, where Riptide is just pumping him full of spikes and throwing stars that all penetrate his steel, and you see him getting embedded in his face and his chest, but he just absorbs that and walks right up to Riptide and snaps his neck like a twig. And that page, I should have written down the page number, but so this is issue 211 of Uncanny X-Men, and uh, it is one of the best pages that you see from the quote-unquote Remeter run. And I think it's possible it might actually be a Brett Blevins page because he split duties with Ramita Junior and I think I'm I'm pretty sure it's a Blevins page. Based on the way Riptide's eyes are drawn. I think it really looks like Blevins. But uh it's one of the best pages from this time period. And everything about this page is perfect. You know, it it's a great composition. It's a close up of of Colossus's arm uh hand tightening around Riptide's neck and you just see this great sound effect crack. And and the look on Riptide's face, he's like it's like an oh fuck look. Like he he's terrified and then close up of just Colossus's mouth gritting his teeth and that crack sound effect. And then the next panel is Colossus in silhouette with his hands still around Riptide's throat as Riptide's crumpling to the ground. And the composition of that is just amazing and then the lettering on top of it the way that Orzachowski, or however you pronounce his name, I guess I don't know for sure. Editor's note, according to the internet, it looks like the correct pronunciation is actually Orzachowski, or something approximating that. Composes that, uh, just the combination of bold and and larger font size, and then the the way that last uh, bubble is like hashed. It just brings an intensity to his words that i won't even try to replicate but he just tells harpoon that he's next on the list and oh how great that would have been if harpoon hadn't slunk away while that yeah. was all happening so
2: another great panel from that too is is that one of levens or a ramita jr yeah. Um but it's Scalp Hunter sneaking up on Kitty Pryde, he sticks his gun right up to her head and it's the panel that where he fires and you see the bullet and the blast from the gun go through her head. Like if she hadn't have phased.
0: Yeah, she would have been all done. Yeah. Yeah. Oh that was this is I mean it's the mo- both the most glorious and the most depressing thing ever, because right here it seems like the X Men are gonna put an end to all of this. You know, Scalp Hunter thinks he's got her, tries to blow her brains out, and it doesn't work. And at this point Kitty could just phase him half into the floor and be done with him in the same way that she did to I don't know if you remember this, but that she did to Nightcrawler in that magic mini series. When she's she and uh Kitty or she and Magic are in Belzacco's limbo, you know, and and, and Nightcrawler is evil and she does something she wishes she doesn't have to do, and she phases him into the floor and kills him. She could have done that to Scalp Hunter and taken their leader out.
2: Wait, is that the Nightcrawler?
0: Yeah. yeah. You, you haven't read that?
2: No. Nope. What's the theme? The, let's just tear Sean's heart out and we'll talk Nightcrawler death in uh, episode?
0: Yeah, well this is a Nightcrawler that you're kind of glad to see die. Okay. I'll just say that. and And let you go and read it, but... That's a horrible story. To
2: the back issue bends on my way home.
0: Yeah. Yeah, read it for sure. I mean this is uh it all takes place between two panels in X Men one sixty. Okay. Ilyana's they're pulling her out of limbo. I forget who has her hand, I think it might be Kitty Pride, but I can't remember. And she's pulling her and she's like, Oh my god, all of a sudden I can't feel her hand anymore. Oh, there she is, and they pull her out. And she went from being six years old to 14 or whatever okay. it is and, you're, and they're like what the fuck happened and so in, in a four issue miniseries you find out what happened and at least the covers of that are drawn by Blevins and maybe the interiors too so it's you know very similar okay. art style to what you see in that Mutant Massacre issue so it looks like it's going to be the turning point but she can't bring herself to do it and while she can't you see Colossus completely snap So he gets her, but the rest of them get away in the shock of all the events that have happened. And fuck. It just leads to more devastation. Yeah. And that happens a few times where it seems like the good guys are going to win. It seems like the good guys are going to stop them. And all they can really do is slow them down for a little bit. And then they get away again and kill more more Morlocks. Another thing we don't really discuss in the Yoast interview is the brief appearance of the New Mutants. In the series, their role in it really isn't that significant, but the issues are really great. We see some really awesome art in these issues by Butch Geiss, who goes by Jackson Geiss at the time, and uh, I think he's credited that way in the issues. but same dude for those of you who are reading him now and, and don't think his art looks anything like it used to it doesn't, but he's good back then too. but uh we see basically it just leads into the marauders are trying to nail them too. Uh, and for some stupid reason, even though the X-Men tell them to not go in the tunnels, that's exactly where they go. Because they're kids. Because they're kids and they're stupid, and and they disappear. Uh, and, and where they go is explained. It's not really important to the story. To this story, but they disappear in the tunnels. The X-Men know they disappear in the tunnels. And at the end, the tunnels are wiped clean, and it's pretty much assumed that the New Mutants have bit the dust. Another interesting thing about the art on the New Mutants is that uh, you get a couple of Barry Windsor Smith covers. And they're pretty cool. Um, they don't really look like anything he did for the X-Men. Uh, they're more of a, a wide-angle, you know, entire team fight kind of composition that he doesn't usually... that I haven't really seen from him. But, uh... Yeah, they're definitely BWS covers, so...
2: This got me really excited to, uh finally read the New Mutant stuff for the first time like I'm actually really excited for the point where like I get I don't want to rush through like the X-Men stuff that I'm at now but I'm really looking forward to when like
0: you get to that point yeah because
2: it's one thing like it's interesting to reread the stuff because I pick up on things that I didn't notice before or having some type of foreknowledge of what's coming makes remarks made or you know Relationships brought up. Interesting knowing the outcome, but there is something exciting about having bought an entire run of New Mutants on a bet at our local shop. Because <laughs> that was what happened: was was Andy, the shop owner that uh, Jerry and I go to, just pulled out a long box and told me that he'd sell it to me for twenty five bucks if uh, just I just had to take it. No idea what it could be in. And he heavily hinted that it might have been something. DC just to try to make me not do it. And I bought it and, and he stuck to it. He even had the first appearance Cable and Deadpool in it. He, no shit. He was shit. a he was man of his word.
0: Wow. Oh, Yeah, we've both gotten over on him on some good bets. Yep. <laughs> but it
2: didn't come with the graphic novel, which you so uh, graciously gave to me, because you're a good man.
0: Have you read that yet at I least? I have
2: not. It's sitting in the, I have like a long box or a short box next to my bed full of It's got the Death of Captain Marvel in it. It's got the hardcover of the first uh, Rocket Raccoon miniseries. I just uh, got no time, Jerry. Yeah,
0: that New Mutants number one is so special to me.
2: I'll get rid of the girl.
0: Uh, (laughs) Don't get rid of the girl. It's not that special. But it's um, you really get to see some great Bob McCloud art. He starts the series off, but he's not on it very long. And you never see him do much other than inking anymore. But the guy had some chops when it came to doing the pencils and the layouts for these books. It's a beautiful book. I mean, that that signature uh, cannonball look, you know, with the, the buzz cut and the big ears. Like, that's all him. You know, and, and when I think of Sam, that's that's how I think of him is the way mccloud drew been the
2: struggle for me to go back to it is i'm so one of my favorite issues ever of all time is the issue where sam graduates from the x-force and joins the x-men and so my sam is like x-force x-men and yeah. now on the avengers of all things and so sometimes i think it was like difficult for me to go back to when he was young mm-hmm. um But now I'm actually more excited for it, just to see that progression. Because really, technically, I think that out of every character, this is probably a pretty bold statement, but out of every character in the Marvel Universe, I think that Sam Guthrie has probably shown the most growth. Because you actually saw him escalate, or elevate, or become an X-Man. Or everyone else kind of like, oh, Spider-Man, we're going to revert the status quo. You know, everyone Mm -hmm. kind of stays in a... There's growth, but they're still in the box that they were always in. He seems to be the one that... Uh,
0: was able to get out of it. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I don't want him to be the new mutant kid on the Avengers, but I'm happy to see that he's become one, along with Sunspot.
0: Yeah. it. Yeah, I, I was bummed to see them move to the Avengers, because I think of them as X-Men. But it seems like no X-Men writer wanted to give them... A chance to be good characters, you know. So I'm glad that Hickman took them and, and decided he wanted to do something with them. It's only just in the most recent issues that we see them do anything besides sit on the beach. Yeah. But uh, hopefully, he will eventually. In such a large cast, you can't expect a lot. But right. uh, I would like to see some character growth from them because these these are characters that have been around now for twenty years. They, should, they They can't still be kids at no, this it's point. It's got
2: to be more than 20 years, man. 20 years would be X-Force.
0: So I meant 30 years. Yep. Sorry, I forgot how old I was.
2: Yeah. Oh. <sighs> what a bummer. Yeah. Does it, ever, does it ever keep you up at night knowing that some B-list Morlock character is going to live on longer than anything you've ever done? <laughs> <laughs> nope. Okay.
0: Not while Chris Yost is on duty. <laughs> he will take care of anything and anyone that comes along. I'm just going to cut that all out.
2: Fair enough. Another interesting thing that I really enjoyed about rereading this was seeing that this was um, there's a particular point in the issue where Storm is trying to track down Logan because he's kind of gone off on his own and she gets Betsy to... Uh, telepathically mind link with him to talk to him and it was really interesting because they've never met like this is the first time that he's ever having any type of interaction with Betsy Braddock is her basically invading his mind and trying to figure out what he's up to and explaining to him that he needs to come back so that they can all sort of regroup and I just found it really interesting knowing their relationship now and their their, um, part in X-Force and like the clandestine um, Yost and Kyle and Remender X-Force where they have this bond and this secret that they keep between the two of them to see them in this like untrusting manner where he really hates the fact that she's kind of just plopped herself into his mind it's kind of an interesting thing and then towards the end you actually see Betsy um, in a role that I'm unfamiliar with because I'm used to Ninja Betsy. Asian Ninja Betsy, yeah. Yeah. So, like, suddenly you see towards the end her, um, trying to prove herself that she belongs there.
0: She's looking for a way. From the very beginning, she keeps talking about, well, not talking about, back when they used thought bubbles. I miss
2: the thought
0: bubbles. She talks about, to herself, about, you know, how she wishes that they could see the, I forget how she phrases it, the tiger within her or something like that. They just see the prim English lady and, uh... And she just wants them to see that she's up to the challenge of being an X-Men. She wants to be one of them. And in the end, she has a knockdown dragout with Sabretooth and lives to tell the tale. You know, and if it hadn't been for for certain things happening to bail her out, she may not have lived to tell the tale, but she would have definitely died a hero uh, with Moira McTaggart knowing exactly what she had done sacrificing herself to, to saber-tooth to save all the injured down in the infirmary you know she's trying to lead Sabretooth away from them uh by giving him her as prey and uh she really holds her own for a while and but Sabretooth is so badass in this series that there's there's no way she was going to last for very long she does manage to worm her way out of it and in the end is able to get in his mind and and s- steal the memories of of who he is and who the marauders are and give them some clues to go on you know to f- to solve the mystery of the marauders and and uh, hopefully eventually get some vengeance on on them for what they've done and, and while she's doing that you see the most incredible Wolverine Sabretooth tooth fight uh, this is all drawn by Alan Davis some of his earliest Marvel Marvel work in the U.S. Uh, and it's absolutely beautiful and you see some violence here that you don't see in mainstream comics in these days I mean this is there's no big deal about this now now you see beheadings and blood everywhere but back in in the day, you don't see Wolverine punch his claws into someone's flesh like this. In those early Cockrum issues, you see him swinging his claws around like it's no big deal. And you know he means business and he wants to hit, but his aim is like a stormtrooper's. You know, he never hits anything. He'd be clawing people's faces off if he was ever making contact. But here you see claws going through the dude's arm, claws going right into Sabretooth's thigh, and uh just awesome continuity of damage where you see saber tooth claw marks across the top of Wolverine's head. You know, the, the fin on, the right fin coming off of his face, slowly deteriorating worse and worse. Um, and by the end, their faces are just bloody, pulped, disfigured. They look like a UFC fighter at the end of a five round fight, you know. Saber has
2: this, this huge fat lip.
0: Fat lips, <laughs> closed eyes. It's awesome, you know. And you don't see fights like that back then. So, that issue two thirteen is a tour de force art wise and storytelling wise. And at the end, you see Wolverine. You, I think that's really the beginning of the relationship. He saw that fight. And as they reveal, he's got past history with Sabretooth, and he knows what it means for her to have survived that fight and got the better of him. Uh, and he's her first real um, not benefactor, but he speaks up for her and says, she needs to be on this team.
2: Yeah.
0: And why Callisto isn't on the team at the end of this episode kind of baffles me. Because she seemed ripe. To join, you know, she doesn't really have much left of her own. And I guess she needs to go back and try to rebuild, but she seems set up to join the team. And it surprised me that she didn't rereading it now. One story thread that doesn't get touched on in the Yost interview that is really significant doesn't have an impact on the story now as far as Thor's continuity goes. But back in the day, it was a big deal for a long time. We see Thor wearing armor. And the reason he's wearing armor is because during the mutant massacre, uh, Hela shows up and places a curse on him where he is now immortal. No wound can kill him, but his bones are as brittle as glass. <laughs> Maybe not as brittle as glass, but as, as brittle as a human's at least. So the kind of damage that he used to take, his flesh can still take, but his bones can't. And we see the first gruesome injury. As a result of that, in a fight that he has with Blockbuster, where Blockbuster shatters his forearm. And, uh, we'll see more of that later in the showdown that the Avengers have with the Masters of Evil at Avengers Mansion, and I think that was called, what was it? You remembered, I don't Under remember. Siege? Yes, the Under Siege storyline, which was a crazy, unconnected follow-up to this story, but it's kind of like, the Avengers Mutant Massacre, where they go through their darkest hour and have to figure out who they are and what they are following that event, where Avengers Mansion is just completely destroyed. Jarvis is brutalized. Everybody goes through their own personal hell in that story in, in much the same way. So uh, coming out of that, Thor kind of has to encase himself in some battle armor to protect himself from more of that shit happening.
2: And he goes out and finds Bruce Willis. (laughs) That's
0: right. (laughs) So anyway, that's that. Having had this discussion, I still think that this rates as one of the top X-Men stories of all time. Sean, I know you don't consider it one of the greatest...
2: I do after hearing you and Yost talk about it.
0: So, nutshell, do read this, if you haven't before. The caveat to that, I would say, is while it does exist as a graphic novel that you could go pick up off the shelf and read it, I think that this storyline is best served as part of the continuity. So, when you're rereading this, keep in mind that it's part of a larger story thread, and you don't just necessarily want to read this this is something really special that you should set aside and read the big story you know i'm talking like maybe around issue 200 start there and work your way up to maybe inferno you know maybe maybe up to the fall of the mutants maybe that's where you want to stop that's a good stopping point but you want to know how you got to the mutant massacre It's not necessarily important, but I think you'll get a better appreciation for the story if you know have a really good understanding of what dire straits the team is in coming into this, and who X-Factor is coming into this, and where they are coming out of it, and what it leads to. You know, it's it's a great story, but like Sean says, you don't really have a full appreciation for it unless you understand it within the context of the bigger story. And one thing, another important thing that the trade leaves out is the final issue of the, of the series is X-Men 214 where you see Malice's contribution to the massacre. You see her in the story, but you don't see her final coup de grace where she fights a team of Dazzler who she's possessed, Storm, Wolverine, and Rogue. They go to check on Dazzler because Lila Chaney's telling them, Hey, something's wrong with this chick and you should look into it And Malice kind of tears into all of them. She she jumps around in a way that those of you familiar with the, the Claremont burn run would remember with Proteus. He did exactly the same thing. So but Malice does it and gets them to turn on each other. In the end, they feel like they they don't know when malice is there and when malice isn't and they can't trust each other anymore you know and they know that they have to to keep Xavier's dream alive and to work towards the mutant good but uh, in the immediate here and now they have a real trust problem on their hands so you know while the trade is great you miss that part of the story and I've told you that part of the story so now you know it but um, that is the new status quo Half the team's replaced with with new people that they don't know, and the core of the team that they do know is having issues trusting each other. Mm-hmm. Enough said.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and... Do take the opportunity to go see Thor The Dark World. It was amazing. Jerry loved it. I loved, I loved it. it. Everybody should love it. And... Crucio's next book that's coming out is New Warriors with artist Marcus Toe. So make sure that you pick that up in February. He speaks briefly about that at the end of the interview. And uh it sounds like a fantastic book.
0: I can't wait to see it. And read it. I'm just going to look at the pictures. I don't care what he writes. <laughs> I can't wait to read it. Uh On our next installment of the Great Expectations podcast, we will have guest Don Cardenas talking Ugh. about... We will have guest Don Fart Penis talking about his favorite story, uh, which begins with Wolverine Fatal attra- Wolverine's issue of Fatal Attractions and leads into the appearance of the wonderfully told story of the Wolverine Bone Claws. <laughs> Check us out on Twitter, at GXPod. And check us out on Facebook. We've got a Facebook group now, too. It's really cool. All right, folks. Thanks for tuning in.
2: Thank you.
0: Goodbye. Nightcrawler, welcome back, buddy. Welcome-